I hope uh, Thierry Breton's uh, op-ed doesn't mean that the Commission, by comparing it with 9-11, I hope the Commission isn't planning on extraordinary rendition waterboarding and stints in Guantanamo. Welcome back to Uncommon Decency Season 2. It's really great to be back. Our apologies for the extended holidays, but don't worry, we haven't been idle for past weeks. We wanted to make sure we would get the most insightful guests on the podcast and hold the line over the next few months, because just like Godfather 2 was better than Godfather 1, buckle up, this should be an even better second season. Now, for this episode and the big question of our digital age, who sets the boundaries of acceptable speech? in a public square increasingly convened by big tech platforms. In the wake of the capital storming mob of January 6th in Washington, D.C., and the subsequent and sometimes contradictory reactions by European officials on the role of big tech platforms in both allowing first and then suppressing content that they deemed perilous, we care to reflect on where the partnership of liberal democracies that makes up the transatlantic alliance is headed when it comes to the intersection of civil liberties and technology. Are we seeing a parting of ways, a bifurcation of sorts, or are Europe and America instead closing ranks around a shared commitment to free speech, albeit nuanced by the distinctive policy and market conditions in each side of the Atlantic? We have with us two distinguished experts on digital policy and speech freedoms, one from each side of the Atlantic. But before we go in, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform, give a like and a review it helps us reach out to many more of you and it gives us a motivation to keep getting fantastic guests every week. Wonderful. Well, welcome to another episode and an, and an altogether new season of Uncommon Decency. We're so happy to be back. Uh, we wish all of our listeners a, um, a merry and a happy new year. It's been really a hectic end uh, to an already very hectic year and the beginning of the new one. Uh, looks to be no different. There is just so much uh, that we want to get into uh, in this new season. Um, but just to begin with, uh, we'll be discussing what looks like a, a, a bifurcation or a fracture in the way that uh, Europe and America are addressing uh, the challenges to free speech. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a big regulatory component to, to it, but we, we also want to get into some of the uh, underlying um Ways that our different societies are going about um, are going about moderating speech as liberal democracies, where we share a commitment to having free expression, and yet we're seeing uh, uh, the, the 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 limits uh, and the challenges to to upholding that principle um, in the wake of uh, things that we've seen happen recently. Just to mention a couple, we saw uh, the um, real at real Donald Trump Twitter handle uh, banned. Uh, by by Twitter, the platform, just in the wake of the Capitol uh, storming incident, and we we also saw just a, a few days later the uh, banning of uh, Parler, the micro the microblogging right wing mi microblogging platform Parler by Amazon Web Services. Uh, but uh, we are so blessed today to be joined by two uh, leading experts um, on the issue. Um, I'll briefly introduce them. Uh, Fran Burwell joins us from Washington, where she's a senior director at McLarty uh, Associates, a consultancy, and she's also a distinguished fellow of the Atlantic Council, where she spent um, considerable time uh, focusing on transatlantic issues with, with a special focus on the digital economy. And um, on the other end of the line, we have Jacob uh, Mashangama, and I, I really have to apologize if I'm if I'm butchering this uh, this uh, the uh, your last name Jacob, but we'll, we'll it was perfect, Jorge. Thank you. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll we'll go with your your first names, and um, Jacob is is an acclaimed uh, uh, Danish uh, human rights lawyer based in Copenhagen, where, where he's the executive director of Eustipia, a think tank, but he's also a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, the Fire uh, Foundation. Uh, both institutions are actually both both uh, Eustitia and Fire are focused on civil liberties, free speech. Uh, so we're also very glad that uh, to have Jacob, who has uh, his own vantage point on uh, tra the transatlantic picture that we're we're trying to that we're trying to um, to, to draw here. And my, for my first question, I, I just wanted to starting with Fran and then we'll turn to Jacob. I, I wanted to see if we can get a, a, 
uh, a brief overview of where you see the optics of, of these recent bans. We had uh, an op-ed on political Europe, on the European edition of that paper by uh, Thierry Breton, the, the, the commissioner, shortly after the Capitol incident where he said, you know, this is a 9-11 type reckoning with um, conspiracy theorizing on social media. We got to be very, uh, very careful with what, what we're up against. But then as soon as Twitter uh, canceled um, the, um, the president's account, you had kind of the opposite reaction happening when, where a lot of leading EU officials were very critical with that move. Uh, so what can you tell us, Fran, about uh, th does this look to you like, like there is a fracture happening over the way that American Europe are going about regulating free speech? Well, I think there has been a difference for a while about the way that we regulate free speech. So this is not anything particularly new. I would also put some comments in the basket of political or bargaining maneuvering as the EU is launching a huge raft of digitally oriented regulation or proposals for regulation, the DSA, the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act, as the EU tries to demonstrate that it is uh, the regulatory superpower when it comes to uh, the digital world. But I do think that first off, there is a, an issue because content moderation is a very squishy thing to try and deal with. Um, a famous Supreme Court justice uh, here in the United States said it was impossible to define pornography, but he knew it when he saw it. And so I think that when you see content that shouldn't be online, uh, it's hard to define that, but you know it when you see it or when you experience it, as we all did in Washington with the storming of the Capitol. Um, there are some differences. We hold uh, free speech to be almost, a, I would say, a sacred right. Um, and we are in the United States uh, much more likely to uh, allow people to say things that, quite frankly, are would be considered off um, way too far in Europe in public settings. So uh, you have protected as free speech people, you can, unlike in Germany, deny the existence of the Holocaust. You can um, make statements that are designed to incite racial or ethnic hatred. Um, and the real test is whether it is likely to spur imminent danger. So the example always used is crying fire in a crowded theater, right? That, that puts a lot of people's lives at danger. And yet the courts here have upheld the ability of the Ku Klux Klan, for example, to say things that are definitely designed to incite racial hatred, but there's not an immediate threat. So that's the question of imminence or immediate threat is something that I think is a real distinction between the United States and what I understand of European illegal hate speech, which I'd love to hear about from Jacob, in terms of the incitement, even though it's not imminent, the incitement to violence or racial hatred uh, being, being illegal. We do also in the United States online ban um, child pornography, terrorist content. There are some specific laws about threats to the president and vice president of the United States. So there are some specific, very limited uh, exceptions to free speech but it tends to be that the, the exception is limited and, and the protections are, are broader. And uh, uh, Jacob, uh, really, uh, really uh, nice segue here by, by Fran into your, your area of expertise. Just wanted to, I just wanted to plug your recent report with uh, Justitia that uh, compares or looks at the a range of different countries that have implemented recently, in recent years, uh, what you call mandatory um, takedown, ma mandatory takedown limits, right? The amount of time that has to elapse uh, for a uh, problematic piece of content, right, to be taken down. And you've looked at a range of different countries in Europe that have already, long before this ever kind of took this sort of transatlantic scope, a lot of different countries that you look at, France, the UK, Germany, uh, have been moving in a more uh, restrictive direction. So how can you, uh, what can you tell us about, uh, what, what's your way of kind of uh, how do you think about comparing uh, where, where we're at now? 
Yeah, no, uh, first of all, uh, I'd say I, I hope uh, Thierry Breton's uh, op-ed doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean that the commission, uh, you know, by comparing it with 9-11, I hope the commission isn't planning on, you know, extraordinary rendition waterboarding and stints in Guantanamo for, for people who, <laughs> who spread conspiracy theories and hate speech online. I think that might, uh, even in Europe, be, be go, going a, a bit too far. Uh, no, no, but in all seriousness, uh, I, I, I very broadly agree with uh, what Fran says, that there's a, there's a difference uh, in the approach to, to free speech between America and Europe, even though there are, you know, it, it would be wrong to characterize Europe as, as one bloc. There, there are very, uh, um, um, there are huge differences between European states. So Denmark, uh, where, where I'm based, has traditionally had a very strong, robust protection of, uh, of free speech. So here you can actually uh, deny the Holocaust. If you're so inclined, you can walk down the street with a swastika, even though we do have uh, a law uh, against hate speech. But all um, Council of Europe member states and, and all member states of the European Union have various forms of hate speech in, in, uh, bans. In, in fact, all, uh, the European Union has a framework decision uh, which obliges all member states of the European Union to prohibit certain forms of hate speech, though you, not uniformly. So, so, so you have different ways to to target hate speech uh, in in Europe. But I think it's also uh, important to to, to stress uh, that this was not something uh, you know the the the, the approach in in Europe and and uh, and America. You know, it's not something that was always that that different. So. You know, we, we tend to think of America as this uh, very hard-nosed about free speech, which is true, but it's, it's, it's a relatively recent development. Uh, and a lot of the standards that are, are really speech protective in, in the U.S. Have, were developed in, uh, in, in, in the 60s and, and the 50s. And, you, and I think uh, the reason why, why free speech is so strongly constitutionally protected in the U.S., uh, is, is for very strong historical reasons, namely that, you know, political, religious and, and racial minorities were the ones who were uh, who, who were the targets of censorship uh, and repression. But in Europe, the, the, the lessons from history have, have been have been different here. The you, you could say that there's a tendency of militant democracy. Uh, the, 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 the great German professor Karl Löwenstein in, in 1937 wrote these articles and uh, about the need for democracies to fight back against fascism more militantly. And he argued that, you know, you cannot defeat fascism by just sitting on your hands. You need to crack down, uh, including uh, through free speech. Um, and, and, and so that, that has become sort of more or less the model, especially in countries like Germany, which is understandable, and France, which, of course, are the most, the most dominant countries uh, in the EU. And, 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 and the, the Internet obviously uh, poses a challenge uh, to this because from the outset, um, these, you have these American uh, tech companies who, who, who set up their own rules. And, and then suddenly you have European states who were powerless to do uh, some, uh, something about the spread of speech that they felt were uh, dangerous, would undermine uh, European values and, and European limits on, on, free, uh, on free speech. Um, at, but, but I would say that I think you could argue that Europe has, has won, you know, if, if, not the, the, if not the war, then at least uh, important battles. Because if you look at the sort of civil libertarian ethos that insp uh, inspired by First Amendment ideals that guided American tech platforms up until I would say like five or seven years ago, you know, you had Twitter famously saying that they were the free speech wing of the free speech party. Uh, uh, and they had sort of really lax terms of service. Uh, uh, um, and then compare it with now where these uh, platforms, they emphasize safety and preventing harm. You have seen a huge scope creep in the in their terms of service uh, and and community standards with more and more categories of prohibited speech, and you've seen an almost uh, exponential increase in the amount of of purge content. Um, so 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 th this idea that social media is a lawless wild west, um, I think, is a myth, and that is uh, to a huge degree. 
due to the fact that um, Europe has has fought back. So you, you starting in in fifteen or in two thousand or fifteen or sixteen with this um, with, with this voluntary code of conduct where 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 big tech committed to purging uh, illegal hate speech within twenty four hours, and then Germany was not happy with that, so they adopted a legally binding law, the Nets GG, uh, under which you can be fined. Uh, millions of euros if you don't remove uh, manifestly illegal uh, content within uh, 24 hours. So, so you, so, so, so I would say that Twitter and Facebook have basically modeled now their their content moderation uh, of their community standards and their content moderation policies more on on European uh, standards than American standards. So, arguably, you have a situation where Americans are subject to moderation without representation based on on standards that are that are pushed in Brussels and Berlin well this is this is such a good uh, way to, um, to throw the ball back on on France uh, court because she was uh, right at the very start she, um, she she launched her her introductory remarks uh, with with a with a, a, a hint of what what the EU's been trying to do across several obviously policy areas and Fran looks at uh, at digital policy on, on the whole and this would Include obviously, for instance, privacy as well, where the EU has also been a global leader. Uh, but you know, it's, it does seem as as, um, as Jacob is, is alluding that that the EU just has uh, you know obviously a, a considerable market power to um, shape global regulations to its to fit its own standards, because obviously these companies have to abide. Uh, it, it's easier for them to abide with one by one uh, framework uh, when that when it's 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 a European framework. Um, uh, and, and Fran, I, I know you've worked a lot and, uh, you know, looked a lot at uh, the DSA and what the EU is trying to do. It looks like in the wake of um, recent events, there seems to be in this ongoing effort to, to, sh- to, to shape up the next big uh, digital legislation. It seems like there's an effort to beef up uh, the, the chapter about uh, regulating uh, harmful speech, uh, conspiracies and, and things of the sort. Uh, what's what's what does good look like? What are you expecting from DSA? How do you see the the legislation uh, evolving? Well, I think in in terms of online speech, <laughs> what the DSA is doing is essentially moving the German NetZB to uh, the European to a European level. Uh, a few modest changes, but it's um, it's making uh, a firm regulation out of the code of conduct that Jacob mentioned. And I think the code of conduct, the major tech companies have actually done pretty well in the code of conduct in terms of the number of um, responses that they, uh, the number of complaints that they respond to and and the percentage of takedowns. Uh, But of course that does nothing for the platforms that don't participate. And I should say that all the major US platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Google, they all participate in or were participating in the code of conduct. I think one of the interesting things is not just in content moderation, but um, across the digital regulatory framework, what we have seen is a U.S. perception that the rules for the traditional economy can be adopted and, and used for the digital economy. While in Europe, we have seen new rules emerge for the digital economy or a very conscious effort to apply uh, rules for the traditional economy that regulated, say, hate speech in newspapers and things like that, applied very strictly to the digital economy. And I think that we are now facing in the United States a shift in sympathies where both the conservatives are attacking uh, the platforms, especially social media, for, um, for, in their view, censoring them by taking down content. Uh, and at the same time, others are very concerned about the spread of violent and inciting uh, content, as well as fake news, which is a whole different area, um, through the internet. And I do think that during this next Congress, the two years of the next Congress, we will see efforts to reform Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which um, 
makes which provides uh, protection, liability protections for platforms, uh, just as the uh, DSA will still do. Um, for a lot, it provides protections for platforms for things that are put up by their users, whether it's a YouTube video or uh, uh, a Facebook post or something like that. Um, what we have not seen in the United States is then an organized governmental effort to say, okay, this, this kind of speech falls outside the bounds and you have to take it down. Because our um, definition of what would fall of speech that would fall outside permissible bounds is so narrow, with the exception of child pornography, for example, or things that are related to criminal activities. Let's put it that way. Um, so I think this is going to be a very tough debate in the United States. And remember that you know free speech in the United States is protected against government bans. So these companies are certainly well within their uh, rights to create user guidelines and enforce those user guidelines. And I do agree with Jacob that I think a lot of the user guidelines have become tougher and have followed the European experience because these are global companies. You know, it's easier for them to kind of think about things in a global perspective rather than having one entirely different set of rules for Europe and, and for the United States. Um, but the question comes when, if you are uh, a platform that is as dominant as Facebook, for example, and Facebook bans you, um, is that somehow different from if a small company that wasn't as influential, a platform wasn't as pervasive, bans you? And is that, a, you know, technically, it's not neither case is a diminution of free speech, an attack on free speech, because the government didn't ban you, right? So there's, a, there's an issue here with, do we rely on the companies to do this through their, uh, to what degree do we want further restrictions on free speech, um, given, and here, the things that concern me are the speed with which the internet uh, proliferates certain ideas, including conspiracy theories, et cetera. Do we want to address that issue in terms of restrictions? And, or do we rely on the companies to do it through their user guidelines? Or do we have a discussion among our elected representatives about what is appropriate and what is not given this new environment? I would also say, just to put on the table, that um, what we're talking about is a very, is just only part of what led to the attack on the Capitol. There are still a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of fake news, um, you know, none of what we're talking about in terms of incitement to violence, et cetera, would do anything about the people who spread lies about the validity of the election. So on all these platforms, and I think even in Europe too, there is not yet an opportunity or there's not yet a clear mechanism for addressing disinformation, fake news, uh, conspiracy theories, unless they veer into the violent and uh, racist areas. So the, I think that's a challenge for both the US and Europe. And um, Jacob, unless you, you want to react to what Fran said, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, Poland and Hungary which since the events um, following Capitol Hill uh, storming and, and the Twitter ban and, and so on, they've kind of seized the optics of the bans to carve themselves a role as um, rivals to supranational censorship. Um, Poland is on its way to outlawing the censorship of content that does not contravene with its domestic laws, and Hungary is also slated to do the same thing. Um, at the Atlantic Council, uh, Fran, you convened the uh, uh, the Rocklau. I'm pronouncing this probably wrong, but the Rocklau Forum in Warsaw. Wrocław, Wrocław, Wrocław Forum in Warsaw. Did did we move? Um, did we move from Hungary and Poland to kind of present themselves as 
champions for free speech surprise either of you or no do you see that move as a bit hypocritical given for uh, political context and these countries <laughs> Yeah, um, I have to say that, you know, given the poor record of Hungary and Poland when it comes to, to free speech and media freedom, I don't think one should see this as, as a principal move to strengthen free speech. I mean, just take earlier this month, so you had uh, a number of Polish female uh, LGBT activists who were put on trial for blasphemy because they have put up posters uh, of, a, uh, of, of, of the Virgin Mary in, in, in a sort of a rainbow flag, and, and they face a punishment of up, up to two years in prison. And, and Auburn, you know, does not strike me as someone who's committed to, uh, to diversity in, in opinions and, 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 and media. So, so, you know, if I were to speculate, I think that, uh, and not completely unreasonable, that Poland and Hungary have determined that, that the underlying values uh, that, or the values that underlie the red lines that are um, that are uh, enforced by American tech companies are, are, are very likely to cause problems for for sort of the more socially conservative views on, on moral issues and immigration that that the PIS and Fidesz uh, promote, and so they want to fight back against Facebook and Twitter if their if their uh, more conservative ideologies and supporters are being purged en, en masse from from the platform. Uh, I do, however, think this is a very clever for, uh, tactic from a purely political point of view because it pits these governments as sort of the heroic defenders against dark cosmopolitan forces that are imposing their their, their views on ordinary Poles and, and hung, Hungarians. And that is a position of strength for, for, for both these governments. It, it's something that they have, 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 have played up uh, with, to considerable uh, success, you know, also against uh, the European Union uh, and and so on. Um, so, so, so I, I don't think we should see this as sort of a hard-nosed principle stand by, by Hungary and Poland. Yes, I, I largely agree with Jacob. I mean, I think that these governments are uh, hoping to use this uh, very cleverly, as he said, uh, so that they, those, for example, in Poland who want to campaign actively against LGBT rights, for example, um, would not find their material, even if very um, critical, uh, would not find it taken down. They would have an appeal uh, by that. So I think that we have to see how it actually works out. But I do think that it, it points to a larger issue, and that is that any time um, a leading democracy puts restraints on free speech. You have to be very careful about how it's defined. And I'm gonna sort of contradict myself here because there are others out there, authoritarians watching and hoping to use um, how that speech has been regulated in Europe, potentially the United States, uh, as a way of justifying its own restraints on speech. and. So I think that that's something that we need to be very clear and cognizant about as a risk. Uh, uh, if I may jump in, uh, I, I totally agree with Frank. So, so uh, you stitch my organization, we've done two reports on, on the, the global consequences of the German net GG law, the one that, that obliges uh, dominant platforms to remove uh, illegal content uh, or risk f fines. And, and so after one year, there were, I think, around 13 countries that had Many of them explicitly referenced the German SDG law. And this, this included Russia, Venezuela, Belarus. Uh, and the last report that we published last year, last fall, uh, the number of states had risen to, I think, around 23 or 24. And, and, and the latest and most problematic addition to that list was Turkey. So Erdogan's Turkey is explicitly referencing the, the, the net GG to say, you know, yeah, we can crack down on the internet because the Germans uh, are, are doing it. So, so you know, unwittingly and, 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 and probably yeah, out of good intentions, I would say that, the, the, you know, if you want to be really harsh, uh, Angela Merkel's uh, government has, has sort of created a prototype uh, for, for, for online censorship and which will be used by countries that don't have the same rule of law um, guarantees uh, that that Germany provides, e even if even if Germany 
bans much more speech than, than say, Denmark, uh, it, it still has really robust rule of law guarantees, independent courts, and, uh, and, 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 and free speech guarantees in its constitution, uh, and so on. That is, uh, uh, that is not uh, the case, uh, at least only on paper, if you go to, to, to Russia and so on. And, and I would say that this, um, this, this also has, you know, if you look at the, at the transparency reports by, from, from Facebook, for instance, then 2018 is when the NetSDG was passed in 2017, but it really kicked into effect from 2018. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the numbers of hate speech that was removed in 2018 in, in one quarter, I, I believe it was around maybe 4.5 million pieces of content. But in the last available quarter, it's, it's risen to something like 22, more than 22 million pieces of content. And to top this off, Facebook now identifies something like 95% of that content by, by automation. So AI, whereas it was less than, 30, uh, less than 40% back in 2018. So, you know, can, can, I, can I claim with confidence that it's the NetsDG and its clones that uh, is, is responsible for this? But I, I, I can't say that with certainty, but I, I definitely think it's, it, it's very likely that it has played a, uh, a, a significant part in that. So it not only has it has had consequences in authoritarian states around the world, but it has also uh, meant that in order to 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 comply with with German uh, law, uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, YouTube have 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 drastically uh, expanded their community standards, the prohibitions therein, and and much more aggressively uh, enforced uh, them. And and I think you know it's interesting to see uh, the protests now in Russia. So I read in the, in the Moscow Times that Instagram and YouTube remove a lot of content that protesters are putting up. So, so pro-democracy, pro, pro, uh, pro-Navalny, anti-Putin protesters who are dependent on social media to organize, to document abuses by the police and so on, they, 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 take, it, they take it down, presumably because uh, they are under an obligation to do so under, under uh, Russian law. And that's where, you know, th- that's where I think it's, it's quite pernicious the way that European democracies have, have gone about this with, with Germany uh, with, with Germany uh, taking, uh, taking the lead because, you know, uh, free speech and democracy has been in decline for more than a decade. And so if you have democracies, liberal democracies, who are supposed to be the champions of these ideals, actually, actually being the ones that come up with, with ways that, where it can be limited, then, then that, I think, uh, points to, to, to a dark uh, place. Well, this is this is super, um, and I'll, I'll let uh, Fran uh, jump into this uh, uh, shortly. But I, I, we're so glad uh, to be able to get into all of this because I think um, the the whole reason we wanted to bring up the example um, set forth by Poland and and Hungary, and obviously I think there's a lot to what you just said about it being a very sort of crass uh, political uh, tactic uh, that they're playing, uh, and then we may not uh, really kind of believe. Uh, that their heart is into this sort of crusade for, for speech freedoms. Um, obviously, the, the counter-argument is that they're just trying to enforce their own um, free speech laws and not have uh, transnational platforms ban Polish speech that, it, that, is not, that does not contravene Polish law. So there, there's, I guess there's, there's a real debate there, but uh, the reason we're so glad to get into it is because in, in your recent piece that you shared, uh, I believe this morning on on Lawfare, Jacob, you speak of there being not a clear viable equilibrium when we're discussing these issues. These issues, there's no, there's not a good or right answer. Everything, any way you go about regulating um, uh, harmful and dangerous, dangerous speech is going to come is is going to ripple in one way or another. And, and there, there, it, the ideal option just simply does not exist. We we have these, um, you know, these. Uh, uh, these tacticians in Poland and Hungary, uh, you know, um, are kind of uh, playing up their 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 uh, bona fides. And on the other, we have, as you just said, we have the countries that have uh, had this sort of the more deliberate uh, democratism that they've gone about uh, regulating um, uh, harmful speech in a more deliberate way. Like you said, in in in, uh, in Europe, these countries, as you said, have said, have inspired even worse authoritarians. Uh, like Russia, like Venezuela. I mean, I, I was really struck by your example there of Navalny, because arguably Navalny's no 
uh, is no uh, Trump is no is is not Navalny's cup of tea. He does he does not like the guy, arguably. But no. he... but but interestingly, Navalny went out and and you know he has a Twitter thread where he says that Twitter banning Trump plays into the hands of uh, the enemy enemies of, of freedom uh, and 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 democracy. So you, and and of course you can you can debate uh, that and but but you know I think that. Is something that you have to to take uh, to take uh, into account. Um, but I think one of the reasons is in, in in liberal mature democracies we tend to take free speech for granted. You know, and and the benefits, the immense benefits that we enjoy, the fact that that we can sit, uh, you know, in three different countries uh, uh, and have a free discussion and no fear that we will be. Punished, even though we criticize the European Union, uh, Poland, uh, Russia, and so on, we take that for granted. Those 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 benefits are almost invisible to us. Whereas, you know, with the the internet, the harms and costs of free speech have become amplified and much more visible to us. So we see them as more consequential than the invisible benefits. Whereas, if you live in Hong Kong or Belarus or Russia, uh, then the crackdowns on, on social media, you know, you, you, you feel the benefits of free speech much more directly be, uh, and, and the dangers of, of censorship uh, much more directly on you because you cannot take free speech for granted because basically you do not have uh, free speech. And that's very, very tricky to negotiate in a global world where the context differs so, so widely um, uh, because, you know, obviously those who are testing the limits of free speech in liberal democracies tend to be extremists, whereas those who test the limits of, of free speech in authoritarian states might very well be, be pro-democracy uh, activists. Yeah. And uh, Fran, I'm, I'm sure you've got, uh, you've got a, a, a range of reactions to that, and, and we'd like you to, to get into all of that, uh, all of them. But can I just peg uh, onto that, onto what just Jacob just said, that you have been looking obviously with uh, Biden coming into office, I think the prospect for some level, uh, certainly some level of goodwill uh, when it comes to regulating um, uh, digital policy issues of uh, the, 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 that we're going to be in a better spot than we were over the past four years. And, and, and I know you've looked at, you know, the different areas where digital cooperation uh, may uh, may um, may yield better results under under Biden administration. So maybe you can you can uh, get into into some of that. But but I, I thought it was so important just to underscore back to what Jacob just said that, that, that these examples of Germany on one side uh, wanting to play this militant democratism, but it, ending up inspiring some of some rogue authoritarians the world over in Venezuela and Russia, and on the other hand, some actual well some some you know less than savory. Uh, 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 illiberal Democrats in Central Europe playing up as, the, as, as being real free speech defenders. This all underscores the fact that there is no easy answer, right? Um, so maybe, Fran, if you've got uh, reactions to any of that, and then we'll, we can turn to some of the, uh, some of the, the, the future really in transatlantic policy debates. Sure. Well, I think that there are no easy answers. I can totally agree with that. Um, I think that we need to distinguish between that speech that is actually regulated um, and that that is undesirable but is not illegal. And uh, in a report that we did just before the holidays on a uh, digital agenda for the Biden administration with the EU, we looked forward to the Democracy Summit, the Summit of Democracies that the uh, President Biden uh, intends to convene sometime soon. And I think this could be an opportunity for a really hard discussion about the issue that we've just been discussing, where attempts to protect democracy from the extremes of speech lead autocrats and others, give them room to legitimate the restraints that they're putting on free speech, but also to talk about how some of the speech that is harmful but not illegal uh, should be addressed, whether that is through counter disinformation or some other way. But I think both Europe and the United States, we have seen the rise of QAnon, for example. Um, and I think that that is certainly destructive of our democracy. And that is something that we we need to figure out whether there is a way forward for us to gather in that. And I think it would be better for democracies as a group to address it rather than, and to learn from each other 
rather than Europe to figure out its own approach and us to figure out our own approach. There will be differences, but I think in general, my attitude is we should consult and think about best practices and how we deal with what is an international or global phenomenon, unfortunately, um, together. So I do think that with the new administration now in office, um, even though it will be a while before their, all their people are in place, that's going to take a while. It's always very frustrating for our partners. Um, and uh, so it will be a while before you see real policy shifts rather than rhetorical policy shifts. Uh, but I think that they are, the new administration is seized with the importance of working with Europe, certainly, and they are uh, already beginning to focus on some of the key elements of digital policy vis-a-vis -vis Europe. You will know that after the European Court of Justice decision in Schrems II, there has been a um, major issue in terms of the transfer of personal data from Europe to the United States, and there have been negotiations ongoing. And really in uh, a very speedy fashion, the administration has identified who is now going to lead the negotiations for, for the new administration. So this was someone who was identified well before you would expect it in the normal uh, if there had not been this crisis. So to me, that's an early indication that the administration is focusing not just on, you know, the big platitudes about U.S.-European relations and how the EU is uh, much more important to the Biden administration than it has been to previous administrations. And they're actually thinking about some of the digital issues that have been uh, dividing us. I do think that it's going to, there are going to be some tough moments ahead. Uh, digital services tax will provide uh, a lot of fireworks undoubtedly, uh, but hopefully we can get a lot of things uh, resolved within the OECD framework for that. The Digital Services Act and the Digital um, Markets Act are going to be tough. Uh, there are a lot of US companies that are affected and I expect that uh, there will be some concerns expressed about it. But I think as well, it is good. It, it seems to me here that the climate is changing. And whereas we used to, as I said at the beginning, just say that the old rules for the traditional economy, we don't need anything beyond that for the digital economy. I think that's starting to shift here. Whether it will shift in a considered and mature direction or whether it will simply be, which I hope it is not, let's go get the big tech companies because they're big, um, I think is, is the question. And I think that the US and Europe are going to face a challenge. We have to figure out how we can deal with some of these questions and I would say the question we've been focused on today of online speech is probably one of the most important. Um, we have to figure out how, what rules we want for this area and to what extent we want to regulate it because otherwise other countries, and I would point to China in particular, but there are others out there, will present alternatives that others around the globe will pick up. So standards in terms of digital regulation, uh, what are the rules of the road, are going to become increasingly important. Um, the COVID pandemic has only demonstrated to all of us how important the digital world is. And if we, the US and Europe, go separate ways, totally separate ways, we won't agree on everything, that never happens, but if we go totally separate ways, um, we will find that others, uh, and the Chinese in particular, become much more dominant in the way the global rules for the digital economy are constructed. So I think we have a couple of years to try and fix this, and I think the new administration is going to try. Um, and once their people are in place, I expect that we will see uh, a real conversation across the Atlantic on this. To bounce back on the point you just made, 
Um, if you look over the power dynamics uh, over the past few weeks of the reactions in Europe and America to the, uh, the censorship decisions from Twitter and, and, and Facebook and others, um, there's obviously a very different reaction from Europe and America, but we have brought this down to the issue of free speech, but could it also be an issue of sovereignty? It's going to be a very important aspect of this conversation for the years to come on free speech is it's one thing for an American to get censored by an American company. It's quite another for a European to get censored by an American company. How, how do you see that kind of uh, other layer which adds to itself to the kind of uh, conversation we had on free speech, how this kind of other layer of, of sovereignty adds itself to the, the way these, uh, this conversation will be going on uh, for the years to come? I think actually that when Europe starts talking about um, digital sovereignty, I think it is not always the most constructive approach. I totally understand um, how different, it is different, exactly what you say, that to be um, censored by a large company that is not from your own country is, I think if you reverse the situation, I think Americans would be upset as well. If, if, if Twitter were German and Facebook was French, um, and you had the same usage rates here in the United States, I think there would be some, some questions about that. And the idea of, a, say, a German social media platform uh, suspending permanently, the, uh, suspending the account of the US president, um, that would be very problematic. Um, so I can see those distinctions. But I think that um, digital sovereignty that phrase sometimes ramps up the rhetoric. And I, I think that we need to focus, and this is where discussions about the DSA and the DMA, the um, artificial intelligence law that is a proposal that's likely to come out of a commission this year, uh, the Data Governance Act that's just come out. All of these, we need to focus on the specifics of whether these are treating American firms differently from European firms. Obviously, an American firm that operates in the European market has to follow European law. But to me, there are questions when either you are setting up potentially new trade barriers with, for example, the AI law requiring um, approvals and certifications of AI that is not trained on European data. And we don't, we don't know how that's actually going to manifest itself in reality yet. So we have to be cautious. But, and then there are, you know, with the Digital Markets Act, they have put forward in the proposal what qualifies a company as a gatekeeper and it looks like it will be primarily U.S. companies, but we'll have to see and it, um, as they run through the numbers. But I would have questions about a proposal that imposes ex extra obligations on large companies that then turn out to be primarily American. So I, but I think it comes down to these specifics. And while I understand the desire for Europeans to have more large European tech companies, which I think would be great. Um, I think that when it comes down to making rules, we have to be careful not to discriminate uh, against those that are not from the EU, unless, you know, the EU, for example, did a toolkit for 5G security cybersecurity and the requirements for what makes a vendor secure or not secure for providing 5G components doesn't name any countries or anything like that, but it does set out certain criteria uh, that certainly could um, disallow companies from certain countries, not, not American uh, that I have seen yet, but Chinese. And so I think that Putting out the criteria in that kind of neutral way is a potential way forward. But 
there are lots of specifics that are not clear from the new legislative proposals that are coming out of the commission. And so we just have to see how they work. And they have put out drafts. People raised issues, raised concerns. And then when they put out the final of the Digital Governance Act, for example, a lot of those things were addressed. So I think that there is, there's a conversation that's going on and it needs to be encouraged. Yeah, and we'll, we'll make sure to get Jacob's concluding thoughts here, uh, but I'm just so happy you, you ended uh, on that note there, uh, Fran, because it, it, you just open up uh, Pandora's box there, the, the, the wide range of digital issues that are going to be on, uh, on, on our plates in, in the years to come. And just as you mentioned, the, the prospects for some um, level of, of digital cooperation on digital policy or the, the prospects for that are, are, are certainly looking better with Biden, but there's so many more areas where the EU has already begun moving forth in a, in a more sort of uh, sovereignty direction as, as, uh, or, or as the, the buzzword these days, uh, the, the, the vogue um, these days in Brussels is to call it strategic autonomy. And, and, and that entails, you know, that, that means that a lot of lawmakers are going to be talking about other areas of digital policy where they do want to see the EU uh, leverage its, its market power to shape global rules on a range of issues where, as you said, the important thing is for the conversation to be transatlantic and for, for democratic societies to come together and to uh, compare notes on how we're going about uh, different issues. Maybe, Jacob, you've got, obviously, you're, you're more of a lawyer than a uh, policy maker, uh, but maybe you've got some, some, uh, some thoughts there. Would you see the potential uh, avenues for cooperation on maybe other issues that are not necessarily on your uh, kind of wheelhouse. Yeah, uh, I, 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 like I said, my, my expertise is, is quite <laughs> narrow. Uh, um, so, so I think I'll, I'll limit in, in, in this setting my my comments to more uh, free speech uh, oriented. And, and in that area, I see, you know, the potential for cooperation of at least when it comes to sort of legally binding rules would be very difficult just because I met, you know, from the comments that I've seen Joe Biden make about Facebook, for instance, uh, I think he would probably be sympathetic uh, to 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 a more European approach than than sort of a hard nosed uh, First Amendment approach. But I imagine it would be extremely difficult, uh, even if 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 something was to be, uh, you know, a, a law, legally binding rules would could you know pass through Congress. I imagine the Supreme Court. Would 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 strike it down on First Amendment grounds if it was sort of modeled on, on a European approach where where, where you try to legally define uh, certain categories of, of speech that that would not live up to to current First Amendment uh, doctrines. Um, so I think that would be uh, difficult. But then, uh, as I said, you know, Europe. You could say that the fact that Europe has legislated not just on this but also on on, 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 on privacy with, with the GDPR um, means that that uh, that that on, on certain issues that uh, Europeans wield uh, um, power over American companies and over uh, Americans uh, and where you know the the, the First Amendment standards have, have have hamstrung you know there was a time when when everyone was fearing, Sort of First Amendment imperialism that American free speech standards would be imposed on the rest of the world because you had these uh, because U.S. was just so far ahead when it came to to internet companies. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of people say that anymore because um, be, because as I said the the standards uh, are, that that are being uh, enforced and adopted by Twitter and, and Facebook are more in line with a European understanding of of the limits. Uh, of free speech, but but you know I, I think um, as as we've talked, uh, there, there is no perfect global solution. I, I think one hope might be more technical than 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 uh, than legal. So moving towards more decentralization, um, so we don't have these huge platforms where the decision of, of you know a few people have ramifications for potentially billions of people but where you have sort of a more horizontal uh, decentralized web where um, which, which was basically the vision of Tim Berners-Lee who invented the World Wide Web he, he very much had sort of decentralization uh, and where users themselves had responsibility for, for moderating content. So, if, you know, if we had a time machine and could we go back to sort of the glory days of the bloggosphere, 
no one would care about you know what you know a neo-nazi blog with 50,000 or 100,000 worldwide followers uh you know what what they spewed of, of hatred because it, it wasn't really that uh, consequential uh and you had a much more organic um content moderation um that that um, that allowed you to to shop around for you know whatever platform or website that that you you thought was most to your liking uh and that i think was much more conducive, uh, if even if more anarchic, also sometimes to to free speech. And I think that's a general rule. You know, looking back at twenty five hundred years of free speech history, I would say as a general rule, decentralization is is uh, is conducive to to free speech, whereas centralization and, and and sort of central choke points where where an authority, whether it be private or or government, can 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 sort of can can restrict free free speech from from the top down is is uh, tends to be more dangerous to and free I speech. That's a really good point to end on as well. We certainly wouldn't be having anything like uh, the thorny regulatory complex puzzles that we face if we didn't have such a humongous mammoth company like like Facebook, because that also entails that you know it's Europeans have to regulate how uh, Facebook operates in our market and. So that, that's a very uh, that's a very enlightening uh, note to end on. We're so grateful uh, that you were both able to join us. Thank you so much for your time. So Fran and Jacob are out. Uh, Jorge, what did you think? Yeah, I I, I just wanted to, to take the chance to maybe kind of uh, remind our audience here what the the purpose of the episode was. Is it may not have been uh, very clear at the start. I mean. The, the whole notion of this for this episode sprang in conversation you and I had o- over um, text where I, I believe it was, uh, you know, the day or the day after the Capitol storming incident where um, or I, I guess it, this would have been the day after when we had in Politico, uh, we had Thierry Breton, who is the uh, EU commissioner for uh, what is it? Civil liberties or whatever, whatever the, his uh, portfolio is. But he came out with a very strongly worded op-ed saying, look at these social media platforms and their their uh, noxious uh, ability to spread fake news and misinformation to an extent that endangers democracy. Remember, that was that was right in the wake of the Capitol storming incident. And that was, if not the day after, then two days out. And um, and that really kind of started uh, that really launched this debate, got it going in the EU, where a lot of people said, "Look, we've got to be very wary that uh, something of that nature could happen in the in the um, in Europe as well." And we, we've got to be we've got to have the tools to regulate uh, online media so that misinformation is uh, tamed and and it doesn't find a, a kind of a um, a hub in, in in places like Twitter. And then obviously a few days later, I, I believe it was a, a week after Twitter banned. Uh, the real Donald Trump account, which is the president, the former president's personal account, um, and then you, and right then and there, you had the opposite, almost the exactly opposite reaction coming out of some of the uh, European capitals. You had, I think, Merkel was among the first ones to say, "Look, we shouldn't be." Uh, I mean, yes, misinformation is a danger, but uh, the platform shouldn't uh, take it upon take it upon themselves to regulate speech. Uh, certainly not the speech of someone as uh, important as the president of the United States, right? I mean, this was still some days out before the inauguration. So Trump was still in office. Um, and the idea for the episode, and I'll, I'll close with, with this, was just to, to get a debate going on whether, I mean, what is that, what is, what is that, those two very different reactions, what do they tell us about where we are at uh, as, a, as a kind of a community of liberal democracies, America and Europe, where we're at in terms of regulating speech, what are uh, what is each um, uh, kind of each side of the Atlantic? How how is each side of the Atlantic tackling the issue? Are we diverging? Are we bifurcating? Are we parting ways? Are the attitudes diverging? And um, so that's kind of how it, it got going. And and then I think we got into a lot of really interesting issues, such as um, you had a, you had an interesting question about uh, Poland and the way they're they're going about regulating. What, what was what was your idea behind that? So it, quick quick notes I'd. Uh... Thierry Breton is a European commissioner for the internal market, which is a huge portfolio. Um, but um, so on the question of Hungary and Poland, I understand the feeling that there's a lot of, you know, the kind of surfing on the issue and presenting themselves as champions of free speech. And there's probably a bit of a 
um, you know, it's a bit opportunistic uh, to some extent, given the, the uh, you know the clashes of the past few months we saw in this debate. However, I do think the idea isn't isn't awful. You know, uh, it's not easy the question of who should regulate free speech, um, and and sometimes a lot of times when governments try to do that, it ends up backfiring. I think, for example, a French law called the Loi Via, which was largely um, uh, based on the German Nets, Nets DG law that we talked about. And the issue with that law, it's, it ends up inciting these companies, these big tech companies, to censor even more because they don't want to get massive uh, uh, massive sanctions, uh, which can go, I think the French law was like 3% of, uh, of revenue in France or some, some, something, something massive like that. Um, For the sake of our audience, Francois, can you maybe walk us through? I think we we did get in at some point with Jacob into this issue of preventive censorship. Yeah. But are there any examples you can point to in the recent past in France where companies have been censoring content as a way to uh, kind of cover their backs? Well, I'm not sure if it's to cover their back, but I know I know during the during the pandemic, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of preventive censorship because they didn't want anything which would make them sound like they were a platform for uh, conspiracy theories and whatnot. Um, uh, but I know de facto it's what's happening uh, more and more. You know, if, if you know you, you're, you're, um, you're going you're to get sanctioned by, by the law for not removing content within, I think, it's for 24 hours, which is insane. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, that's in the Avia law, right? That's in the Avia law, and it, it, it was blocked by the French Constitutional Council. Yeah, because they yeah. considered it to be too uh, too much of an, at- an attack on on liberties. It was uh, too disproportionate. Um, so re- let let's remind our audience, and, and just to, to the extent that you're aware of this case, um, yeah. maybe people will be will, will want to look this up on on Google. But uh, the the um, the Constitutional Court in France deemed the 24-hour takedown uh, li- um, lapse yep. too too stringent. A a a um, it, it thought a that it, so yeah. It was, yeah, it was too constraint. It was it was too much of a constraint. So it wasn't so much that the regulation itself was poorly designed. It was it was that the time span that oh. these platforms were given to take down content was too short. Well, it's too right? short. Therefore, de facto, as a result, it's going to be a mass mm. mass. Uh, Attack on on, on on free speech and whatnot. I think that, that's the logic behind it. You know, if, mm. if you have you have if you have a, a week, if you have ten days to think about it, it's very different. You know, twenty four hours, forty eight hours, it's mm. not enough time to make a proper decisions. Uh, these are complex debates. You know, uh, usually the debates about free speech and you know we've all like a, a similar debate. You know, what is libel? What is fair criticism? These are complicated questions. You know, you, you go for a judge, it can take a lot of time. The rest of it, and the issue now is we have is tech platforms who are doing this in in glimpse of a finger like this um and and to me it's 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 an issue so i think that the polish and hungarian model of only allowing censorship for things which are illegal seems like a good compromise um to me um uh, i mean part of the conversation is simply these platforms that are too too important you know if Mm. if twitter was one of 20 different platforms we wouldn't be having this conversation because uh, you just move to another one, and uh, you know, and Trump may, may move to Parler, but we even saw that Parler is is it's very hard to reach nowadays. Now it was removed from the from the, the Play Store and whatnot. So I think I think a lot of the conversation stems to the fact they're just too important, too central for mm. us to just say, you know, oh, it's a free market, you can do whatever you want. Well, not really, because they've just become so central to to our to our democracy. We can't just say, you know, oh, democracy, and you can go somewhere else. Well, there's there's only one Twitter as of now. And that that creates a lot of um, tensions. Yeah, and um, I, I think I think you're you're hitting the the nail on the head here, and and, that, and you know it, it 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 it's almost like you have this um this this tongue cheek libertarian reply whenever yeah. um yeah. whenever people on the right now and and obviously in America but increasingly in Europe argue for uh for busting up big tech um yeah. or regulating big tech, you have this sort of libertarian reply that goes, you know, actually the, the legal contention at the heart of this is, you know, these platforms have the legal right to defend themselves as a platform, and they have the legal right to enforce their uh, terms of, of use, right? I mean, uh, Twitter, the, 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 um, the libertarian sort of argument in this, in this debate says Twitter is a legal entity and, you know, you, you, you join and you join on the basis of, of terms of use and, if you join Twitter and infringe those terms of use, you, you know Twitter should be allowed to kick you out of its platform. And it's 
right? And as you said, the 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 change that invalidates that framework is that these platforms have become so um, so prevalent, and and so much of our public discourse goes through them that it, it, that no longer that framework no longer applies if you want to uphold free speech, because essentially Twitter will be a de facto censor of, of speech. And um, I, I, I do think as well, I mean, I, I, you may, you may not agree with this. This was Jacob's uh, point. I, I disagree with Jacob entirely on sort of the, on diagnosing uh, the state of free speech in, in a country like, like Poland and Hungary. But I do agree that it was slightly, um, it was slightly um, tactically minded of those two countries to move in on big tech and to say, you know, you will not, censor any content that does not contravene our laws. And I, I agree with you as well, that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a legal framework that I would go by as well. I think it's well designed, but I, the, the reason for it was, was tactical. I think these, these two countries, you know, they, for, for one thing, they are obviously they're governed by, by very conservative governments and within their political persuasion, there has been a lot of censorship in the past. So they're kind of sour on these platforms already. They're moving in and saying, you know, they're signaling, we are a haven of free speech and we will not be, we will not bow down to the, to the supranational censors in, in, in Silicon Valley. But, um, but, you know, I, 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 I totally concur with you. It's, it's a better model than just uh, letting, you know, giving platforms free reign to, to do the job that in the past was done by, by judges and, and national parliaments. But, but I, I do wonder, speaking of judges, I do wonder whether that would hold in the European Court of Justice, mm. because it might be an attempt on, um, on you know, the, your, your capacity as a business to set your own standards and whatnot. And, um, you know, given, given that the uh, European Court of Justice has been quite stringent on protecting um, the rights of uh, Uh, of companies and, and whatnot. Mm. On comprend mon montage, je dis n'importe quoi là, je, 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 je bug, mais... Uh, uh, so, uh, speaking of judges, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether they will hold in the European Court of Justice because there might be a case saying this is a excessive regulation or um, infringement on the capacity of companies to set standards, you know. Um, and uh, it might be interesting to see if it ever gets um, up to the European Court of Justice. Might be something to follow. Mm, yeah. Well, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, you know, it's it's been a, it's been a very uh, worthwhile episode, and we uh, mm -hmm. we encourage everyone to head over to uh, Apple uh, and give us a five star rating. I'd be very generous of you, and uh, and uh, stay tuned for for our next episode. See you next week.